0: And this morning we're looking on this Easter morning at first Peter chapter four and verses six through 10. So you have sung the word this morning, you've prayed the word this morning, and now we're going to hear the word read and hear the word preached. and let's pray for God's blessing before we hear it this morning. Our Father, we are thankful that You speak into this world. We're thankful that You have given us Your Word. And we do pray this morning that we would hear You thundering in this place. That the truth of Your Word would not be lost on us, sinners. We're in need of such a Word that gives life, that gives hope, that grants grace. So we pray that You would minister to us in only the way that You can, by Your power, by Your strength, and according to Your everlasting kindness. We pray this in the strong name of Christ, the living Word. Amen. Amen. First Timothy chapter four, verses six through ten. This is the holy inerrant sufficient word of God. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Easter Sunday, I love it. I love it because you get choirs, you get children singing. Uh, I love it because it's supposed to feel like spring. Uh, We uh, take it for granted that other people are celebrating spring in other places. Uh, But what I especially love about Easter uh, is that we just can't escape it. We can't escape that there is a living God... And there is a living Savior. It's put front and center for us on Easter Sunday morning. It should be every Sunday morning, but you can't get away from it on an Easter Sunday morning. I want us to see, as we're just going through the next passage this morning, there are three things that, that Paul is going to bring to the forefront. And there are three things that on this Easter Sunday morning, I I hope for all of you in this room. They are my great burden for you in this room. And they are three great burdens for Paul as he goes through this text. The first is this, is that you would know and keep this truth that we're focused on this morning, that you would know and keep this truth. Paul tells Timothy that he desires Timothy to be a good servant, a good servant of Christ. Well, what defines a good servant of Christ? Well, Paul is very clear. The answer is singular. He says, if you would be a good servant of Christ Jesus, verse 6, put these things before the brothers. These things. And he goes on to define what those things are. He says, these things, the word of faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This is what makes for a good pastor, Timothy. This is what makes for a good minister. Not charisma. Not incredible gifts. Not a likable personality. Not even that he's a kind person and and funny. No. What makes for a good pastor, a good minister of the Gospel, Timothy, is that you stick close to this truth. You keep this truth. You know this truth. This is what a pastor is to do. He's to know the truth. And he's to stick close to that truth. And he's to proclaim that truth. This has to be said over and over again. It has to be said over and over in the church. It has to be said over and over through the ages again and again because there is this constant temptation to wander away from the truth. It is constantly tugging. Constantly trying to divert us to other things. Focus on other things. Paul mentions irreverence, silly myths in verse 7. Some translations that maybe you are looking at, we'll call them old wives tales. That is, wandering off into superstitious things. That is, don't busy yourself, Timothy, with nonsense. Stick close to the teaching of the Word. One commentator said it this way The general principle is that good Christians, and especially good ministers, do not speculate about matters not taught in Scripture. They refuse to become distracted by trivial ideals of the day, ideas of the day. They do not allow controversies in politics, sports, education, or even religion to distract them from solid, biblical, truth. Don't be distracted, Timothy. Paul is very clear. Have nothing, he says in verse 7. He couldn't be more definitive. Have nothing to do with the irreverent silly myths. Listen, my friends, there is one thing that the devil wants beyond every, anything else in your life. And that is that he would create a rupture between you and the Word of God. He has the same plan over and over and over through the millennia. It's his Alpha and Omega plan to try and divert you from the Word of God. So Paul says, know it. Keep it, Timothy. Now, I want you to understand the background here a little bit. How is it that Timothy knows this Word? How does he know it? Paul will say in Second Timothy chapter 1 that he came to know this word through his grandmother and his mother, Eunice and Lois. That these two godly Christian women, that they knew this truth and then they passed it on to Timothy. Don't you mothers discount what you do day in and day out? You grandmothers. It's all the diapers and the dirty dishes and the endless laundry and the sleepless nights and the crying. You can sow truths that not only affect the souls of your children, but what Paul is saying is that it is in a way, the way that the church is kept by passing on this truth. It's the duty of every Christian to know this truth, to keep this truth. It's our duty as a whole. I often think of Psalm 78 where the psalmist says, we will not hide these mighty works of God. He says, quote, "...from our children, but tell to the coming generation, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise, and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments." Know the truth, Timothy. Keep the truth, Timothy. And pass it on. Paul says the second thing he emphasizes and what I hope for every one of you in this room is not only that you know this truth, not only that you keep this truth, but that you grow in this truth. Grow in this truth. Paul says, verse 7, train yourself for godliness. It's not enough that you simply know this truth. It's not enough that you simply keep this truth. No, Paul says you are to grow in this truth. And what does it look like to grow in this truth? It looks like godliness. Paul will use this term, godliness, or godly, nine times in the book of 1 Timothy. We could say... That really, this is the main thrust of this entire book is that he is telling Timothy, Timothy, I want you to be godly and I want you to be a model of godliness and I want you to pass on this godliness to those that are under your care. It's all about being godly. I want you to hold on. I want you to know and I want you to grow in truth. David is a good example of godliness. He says in Psalm 16.8, I have set the Lord always before me. Godliness is the idea of respect for God and life lived in light of that respect. A godly man or a godly woman doesn't simply know with their mind. They show that they know this truth by the way that they live. Their living shows it. They know that they are ever living before the face of God and that shapes all their living. Godliness. Pursue this, Timothy. Godliness... Is more important than greatness, my friends. I see this over and over through the Scriptures. You will have soul that he is a great man. He is great in size. He is great in that he is taller over everyone else in Israel. He is great in strength. He is great in stature. And yet David is greater still because he is godly. A Pharisee is great. He is a man of great status. He is a man of great education. He is a great man of prayer. He is a great man of religion. He is a great man at going and giving at the temple. But the widow is greater still because she is godly. In the economy of God, godliness always trumps greatness. Be godly. But it takes effort. It takes effort to be godly. Godliness isn't simply given as faith is. He gives us grace for godliness, but it also takes effort on our part. Paul says to Timothy, train yourself. Train yourself in this. The word that he uses is the word that we get gymnasium from. You're in the gym, Timothy. Effort is required. And he employs that idea in verse 8. He says bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. It is worth your every effort, Timothy. I remember thinking about this when Lee and I were in Dallas, Texas before we had kids and Uh, We would drive to church on Sunday morning in sunny Dallas. Dallas only has two seasons. It's hot and a little less hot is all that they have. Uh, And we would drive on our way to church on Sunday morning. And because it is very unlike Michigan, hot and less hot... Every Sunday, no matter the Sunday that we were driving to church, we would go by this lake on our way to church in Dallas. And this lake had this wide sidewalk that went all the way around this lake. And on that wide sidewalk that went all the way around this lake would be person after person after person. It was crammed full of people. And they were all exercising. They were up early on Sunday morning of all days to get their body fit. I remember thinking as we would drive them each Sunday, how sad it was that they were simply concerned with their body's fitness and they were missing the greater thing. And I would often pray as we were going by those people, I'd pray for that man and pray for that woman. And I would say, oh God, would You give them as much concern or even more concern for their soul's fitness as they are for their body's fitness? Is physical fitness wrong? No, I admire those of you that do it. There's some value. I know it surprises you that I don't. Uh, There's some value. But the value is fleeting. Whereas godliness, Paul says, is quote of value in every way. Godliness is valuable in our personal lives. It's valuable in our family life, in our vocation, in our recreations, in society. It is valuable when things are going well. It's valuable when things aren't going well. It's valuable whether you are old or whether you are young. You want to be a better friend to your friends? Then you seek to be more godly. You want to be a better parent, a better mother or father? Then you seek to be godly. You want to be a better brother or sister or aunt or uncle. Godliness. You want to be a better citizen or neighbor. Godliness. You want to be a better worker in your job. Godliness. You want to be a better disciple of Christ. Godliness. Godliness. is of value in every way, in every place, at every time. It truly matters forever. Listen. Won't you hear me clearly? If this world is all that there is, if this is all that there is, then pursue other things with vigor. Go after those silly myths. Go after politics all the time. Go after all the controversies of the day. Consume your time and your energy and your effort with them. Have your best body now. But if this isn't all that there is, then you should be investing what lasts forever. Godliness, Paul says in verse 8, Is not only a value for the present life, but also for the life to come. That's a life changing thought. When you begin to have that thought, it changes everything. The Word is telling you and me that we live in light of eternity. live in the shadow of eternity. And here is the amazing thought. That there are present blessings, yes, to godliness in the present. There are present blessings. What what Paul is telling you is that those present blessings, they carry over into eternity. It's carried beyond this life. You know, when a great pharaoh in Egypt would die and they would put him in a pyramid or put him in a tomb. They would put all kinds of things in there with him to carry with him to the next life. They put gold in there and they would put all kinds of vessels and weapons. They would even put wives in there for him so that he could carry them to the next life with him. What grave robbers eventually found out was that those things didn't go anywhere. They remained. You can't take anything with you. Nothing goes with you. Except, Paul says, godliness. What the Spirit begins in us here is perfected there. What we yield to Christ in effort here stores treasures there. But it requires effort. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul will say to the Philippians. Put off and put on, he will say to the Colossians. To the Romans, he will say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It takes effort. You are in the gymnasium of God. You have to sweat. Think about how athletes will do this to make their bodies fit. They will put themselves through a, a living gauntlet for a little hunk of metal or so they can stand on a platform in front of other people. I was looking up this week, um, Michael Phelps, the greatest swimmer there's ever been. What was it that he would do when he was training to to be a swimmer, and this is what he did. He would work out twice a day, every day of the week, for five to six hours a day. He swam a minimum of 80,000 meters a week. That's at least 50 miles per week. I don't even do that in my car in a week. His entire life revolved around becoming a better swimmer. His entire life. Ah, dear Christian, what we are to desire and what we are to be aimed at is of infinite more value. Infinite more. Grow in godliness. It is of value in every way. How? How do you do this? How do you grow in this truth? How do you grow in godliness? Well. You're not left to your own machinations. You're not left to your own kind of figuring it out. In our day, if you're serious about getting in optimum physical shape, you'll go get yourself a physical trainer. A trainer walks alongside of you. The trainer will teach you. He will work with you or she will work with you to get, to you, get you to where you desire to be, sometimes the trainer challenges you to get you where you don't desire to be. But they know you need to be. And so, they will challenge you to it. Phil Ryken, commenting upon this passage, rightfully said, there is a sense in which every Christian has a personal trainer. The Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to produce the life of God in the soul. We grow in godliness by hearing the Word of God preached week in and week out as you come here on Sunday morning. You grow in godliness as you read the Bible each day. As you study the Bible each day. As you pray over the Bible each day. As you meditate upon the Bible each day. As you seek to live your life by the Bible each day. That's how you grow in godliness. The Spirit works through this truth that you know and that you have received and that you are to cling to. Some of you have never truly read the word. Maybe you sat down once and you started to read and you said, Ah, this is confusing. I don't understand a single thing that it's saying. Been there. Understand that. I came to faith my freshman year in college. I knew nothing of the Bible. I remember opening up the Bible and trying to read it, and I couldn't make heads or tails of different things I was reading. And so I went out and I bought myself a study Bible. The study Bible is just a Bible that it has the text of the Scripture there and then at the bottom of the page you have all of these notes where they're providing you information about what in the world the Bible is saying in this chapter or in this verse. And you can read those notes. In that freshman year of college, I can remember taking my study Bible. It was under my arm. And I would run from one class to the next. I looked like a fool, I'm sure. But I was a fool for Jesus. Because I was running from my one class to the next class so I could just get there 10 or 15 minutes before that class would start so I would have time to open my Bible and just read as much as I could. I would read the Bible and I would read the notes. I bet the first four or five years of my Christian life, that's what I did. Every day. was just... Read the Bible and I would read every note in the Bible. It's that easy. If you don't feel like you know the Scriptures or feel like you don't know the Scriptures adequately, then you just go out and buy yourself a study Bible. You buy yourself a good ESV study Bible or a Reformation study Bible and you just start reading it and you read those notes. Some of us in this room have grown stale in our Bible reading. You can't grow in godliness if you're not feeding your soul with the Word of God. It's an impossibility. You need to be listening to the Word, reading the Word, studying the Word, meditating upon the Word. You need to turn back to the Word. The Christian is never, ever, we never rest upon our laurels. You never rest upon what you were. Or what you knew. Or even what you know. We've been brought to a living faith. And living the life of faith, it requires constant nourishment. An athlete doesn't attempt to compete without proper nutrition. You cannot walk the Christian life You cannot fight the good fight of faith. You cannot finish this race without the right nourishment. You need to feed your soul. And that takes effort. Godliness takes effort. Proper diet, proper exercise. Martin Luther said it well when he said this. He said, this life therefore is not righteousness but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we're growing toward it. The process is not yet finished. But it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory but all is being purified. That is, all the effort you expend is worth it. It's eternally worth it. Keep growing in this truth. Finally, Paul would hope and I would hope for every single one of us in this room but you not only know this truth, you not only are growing in this truth, but you have set your hope upon the God of this truth. This is Paul's great desire. He says in verse 10, for to this end, and then he uses two strong words, labor and strive. Labor pictures an athlete in a wrestling match. Strive has the idea of fighting or struggling. He says, for to this end we labor and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul's reminding Timothy, this is why we're in the ministry, Timothy. This is why you and I are pastors. This is our aim. This is our purpose. We are laboring and striving, why? For this singular purpose to see others set their hope upon the living God. That's our aim. And every Christian knows that longing. You know that desire if you are a Christian. A person that we saw in crunches we want them to set their hope on the living God. That student you sat next to in class, you want to see them set their hope on the living God. That bag boy at Meyer, you want to see him set his hope upon the living God. You want every single person in this room to set your hope on the living God. Every single person to the ends of the earth. We want every one of our family members, every one of our neighbors, every one of our friends, every one of our co-workers to set their hope on the living God. Why? Because we want them to have the same living, lasting hope that we know and that we enjoy. We labor and strive. But all this labor and striving, we can't force anyone. I can't force you this morning. The person who sits next to you can't force you this morning. Martin Luther, the reformer, said it well when he said every man must do two things alone. He must die alone. And he must believe alone. No one can force you to believe. You have to believe. You. It's a question for every person in this room, no matter your age. You hear me, children? No matter your age. It's a question for every person in the room, no matter your sex, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your sin. Have you set your hope in this living God? Have you set your hope in this living God? So many set their hopes upon something. Maybe that's you this morning. set your hope upon goodness, your goodness. People will set their hope upon their prayers. They will set their hope upon the financial giving that they give to the church, their faithful attendance at chur- their church. Set their hope upon being kind or being a good servant in their community, of doing good things, being a good neighbor. Setting their hope on something. There are others who set their minds on blind hope. I just hope I'll get to heaven. Just hope. Just hope. God's got to be a good God. Just hope that He'll let me in the gates of heaven. Do you notice what Paul says? He doesn't say that you are to set your hope upon something, but somebody. Set your hope on the living God. This isn't just one among many, but he says, on the living God. He's not a creation of our imaginations. He's not simply the product of wishful thinking. This God lives. He lives. I want you to think back on what we celebrate this Easter Sunday even. When this world sought to do away with the Son of God, they plotted, they planned, they arrested, they ridiculed, they charged, they beat, and then they condemned, and ultimately, then they crucified Him on the cross. And they thought they had done away with the Son of God. They buried Him in a tomb, put soldier guards in front of that tomb. They had done away with the Son of God, they thought. He cannot so easily put away the Son of God. He rose. He lives. (laughs) In our day, people have the thought that they have done away with God in a more sophisticated way. Friedrich Nietzsche made the phrase famous where he said, God is dead. He meant that on this side of the Enlightenment with Reason and our ability to understand things as modern man that we no longer have the need for something as silly as God. We can be done with God. We understand how the universe works. He wrote, God is dead. God remains dead. And we've killed Him. But as the Roman cross couldn't do away with the Son of God, so the modern philosophers' protestations cannot do away with God. He lives. He lives. So Paul can say here, our hope is set on the living God. Our hope is set upon the God who has triumphed over all and who reigns over all the entire universe. Paul says here he is, quote, the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. My friends, hear this this morning. There is only one Savior. There's only one. And Paul made it clear all the way back in chapter 2 where he said, for there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom for all. And as there, Paul here is saying that Jesus died for every single type of person. He's not saying that every single person in this world is saved. Christianity is not a universalist faith. Not everybody is saved. Christ died for every single type of person and He is freely offered to you this morning. He's freely offered to you. But not everybody will be saved. And what's the difference? What's the difference between those that are saved and those that are not? Paul makes it clear. Those who are saved have believed. That's his point with the word especially here. It has the sense to be precise. To be precise. He is the Savior of all people. To be precise to those who believe. Salvation is always by faith. And it's faith in this crucified Lord who was buried and who rose on the third day. This risen Savior. It is faith in Him. He lives. And because He lives, If your faith is in Him, you live. You live. That is the great promise of Easter. It's a truth worth knowing. It's a truth worth keeping. It's a truth worth growing in. It's a truth worth hoping in. Our God lives and our Savior lives. I want to read something to you in closing. I was uh, last night trying to prepare my own heart and soul for worship, and so I will turn to different people through the ages and read them. And I was reading last night one of my favorite, John Newton. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, uh, wrote that hymn. And I love Newton's letters. And I was reading this letter that he wrote about a woman who had only known Christ for seven years, that he was ministering to on her deathbed. And I want to just read this to you in closing. He says this, She had known the Gospel about seven years before the Lord visited her with a lingering consumption, which at length removed her to a better world. A few days before her death, I had been praying by her bedside, and in my prayer, I thanked the Lord that He gave her now to see that she had not followed cunningly devised fables. When I finished, she repeated that word. No, she said, not cunningly devised fables. These are realities indeed. I feel their truth. I feel their comfort. Oh, tell my friends, tell my acquaintance, tell inquiring souls, tell poor sinners, tell all the daughters of Jerusalem what Jesus has done for my soul. Tell them that now, in the time of need, I find Him my beloved and my friend, and as such I commend Him to them. She then fixed her eyes steadfastly upon me and proceeded as well as I can recollect as follows. Sir, you are highly favored in being called to preach the Gospel. I have often heard you with pleasure. But give me leave to tell you that I now see all you have said or can say is comparatively but little. Nor till you come into my situation and have death An eternity full in your view. Will it be possible for you to conceive the vast weight and importance of the truths you declare? Oh, sir, it is a serious thing to die. No words can express what is needful to support the soul in the solemnity of a dying hour. She knew the truth. She held to the truth. She had grown in godliness in that truth and she had dared to hope in that truth. She knew that even as she was dying, she was living. And that she was going to live forevermore because she had a risen Savior that she was going to live with forevermore. Is that true for you this morning? You set your hope upon this living God. The Savior of all, particularly for those who believe. Let's pray together. The Lord and our God do give you praise this morning. You are a God of so great a salvation. When the world thought it had won, You triumphed over all. You triumphed over sin. You triumphed over Satan. You triumphed over hell. You triumphed over death. That sinners such as us might know life, might know it abundantly, and might know it everlastingly. Father, I pray for every soul in this room that we would not dare leave this place without knowing the gift of the Gospel, without having received this truth, without having been revived in this truth, without seeking to have our lives shaped by this truth, and without hoping in this truth. Thank You for being our God. We give You praise, our living God.